0: Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen.
1: In fact, the title of our study is Religious or Righteous. And I know that there would be some who would take offense and say, well, I'm really neither. I don't consider myself to be a righteous person. I'm not a religious person. I'm just kind of checking things out. Well, Jesus is saying, and it's pretty clear, don't need any real explanation of it, that you're either for him or against him. You're either with him or against him. So you have to make up your mind.
0: Today's broadcast we have a new two-part study Pastor Sam is entitled Religious or Righteous. Now we're going to look at the last 40 verses in Luke chapter 11 and we will start in verse 14 where Jesus casts out a demon. Much of the remainder of this chapter deals with the people's reaction to this miracle. So let's listen in.
1: Luke 11:14 Religious or Righteous. We read in verse 14 and he was casting out a demon. And it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. What we have here is really the foundation of all that follows. The rest of the chapter is Jesus dealing with these two issues. First, the slanderous accusation related to his casting out of a demon. The second, their request for a sign from heaven. Now, we must acknowledge this is another demonstration of Jesus' compassion and his power in the realm of the supernatural. But it leads again to the slanderous accusation. And it's what, well, psychologists call projection. It turns out that Satan had bound this one man whom he had possessed. And, well, the man was mute, unable to speak until the demon was cast out. When the demon was cast out, the man could speak and the multitudes marveled. So the enemy has the power to muzzle people. But then we also see this crazy and slanderous, blasphemous accusation as, as, well, some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Listen, they are speaking for the enemy. The enemy is speaking through them. And that's the real irony here is they're saying, oh, he's working for Satan. And, And the truth was they were working for Satan by blaspheming the one who came to take away the power that Satan has Over individuals, and ultimately, he'll bind them during the millennium for a thousand years. He does it with a word, and then he'll cast them into Gehenna, never to be heard from again. He does that with a word. So, Jesus is going to address this issue. Uh, We have these contrasting pictures one controlled by a demon because the demon possessed him, the others, well, listening to the enemy and speaking for the enemy. Either way, 2 Corinthians tells us we're not ignorant of his, speaking of Satan's devices. We know what he does. We know how he works. Jesus tells us that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And in 2 Corinthians, we saw that hey, his representatives, they, they fake, they present themselves as, as a, you know, instruments of righteousness. But in reality, they are altogether the opposite. Well. Jesus deals with this first slanderous accusation by presenting, well, that it's first of all illogical. Then he's going to show us it's self-defeating and self-accusing. And then finally, it is a demonstration and an acknowledgement of his power over Satan. He, knowing their thoughts, verse 17, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. A house divided against a house falls. If Satan is divided against himself how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. It's a very logical argument. And so he's sort of starting there. He's saying, don't you think it's illogical to say that I'm casting out demons by the prince of the power of demons? Beelzebub, by the way, means Lord of the flies. I doubt that Satan really appreciates that title, but it's one of the many things he's called in scripture. And so Jesus is saying, does it make any sense? Because isn't it a given that if a house is divided against itself, it will fall? If a fellowship is divided against itself, it will fall? If, well, and that's what he's saying. If Satan is opposing himself, if Satan is against himself, how will his kingdom stand? The second thing he does in, in, in dealing with this accusation is he shows it to be self-defeating and self-accusing. He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub... By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. You see, there were many Jewish exorcists. And and so he's basically saying, okay, I'm not the only one doing this. Eh, Who do you think is responsible for your sons casting out demons? Is that the work of God? Or is it that work of Satan? And then he gets to the third issue. And that, that is that they were actually acknowledging his power over Satan. If I cast out demons, verse 20, with the finger of God, Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this is what he wants them to to realize, that, that he is Lord, he is king, and that the kingdom was in their midst. He uses an illustration of one who comes to conquer another. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. When we look at Colossians in our survey, we will read that Jesus triumphed over the power of the enemy and he did it through the cross and in the cross. So when we celebrate communion later this service and we look back at the bread and we we consider the cup that points us to the cross, we remember that that's how he took Satan on and did Satan in. He despoiled him. He, He conquered him by submitting himself to the cross. Why? Satan had sway over people, but the love of God is demonstrated in the reality of the cross. The plan of God for our redemption demonstrated through the reality of the cross. He also says in verse 23, and it's important that we see it, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. He's saying there's no neutrality in this area of spiritual warfare. In fact, the title of our study is Religious or Righteous. And I know that there would be some who would take offense and say, well, I'm really neither. I don't consider myself to be a righteous person. I'm not a religious person. I'm just kind of checking things out. Well, Jesus is saying, and it's pretty clear, don't need any real explanation of it, that you're either for him or against him. You're either with him or against him. So you have to make up your mind. There is no neutrality. There is no well, person or place where you can just say, well, I'm not really, but I'm not really. He says, no, you make a choice and you'll be for me or you'll be against me. Well, he also talks about the importance of making sure that that we've gotten beyond religion or reformation to true regeneration. And here's why this is so essential. The Bible clearly teaches that people were and will be demon-possessed. But I don't believe that any Christian who is born again of the Spirit of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit, can be demon-possessed. Now, there are pastors and others will disagree with me and they'll say, well, we know Christians that have been demon possessed. Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter seven, that many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? And he'll say to them in response, I never knew you. They claim to be followers of Christ, representatives of Christ, servants of Christ. But he says it was never true. We never had that relationship. You call me Lord, but that was never reality. So I'd suggest that when people say they're Christians and then they open themselves up to demons and the demons take control of their lives that the truth was they never really were a Christian. If you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians tells us, every Christian is. You have to know the Holy Spirit's not going to share the temple of the Holy Spirit, your body, with a demon. But Jesus gives us a picture here of reformation, not regeneration, in verse 24. He says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I'll return to my house from which I came And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. See, that's a picture not of regeneration, not of of righteousness, not of of a spiritual life, but but of reformation, cleaning house, sweeping it. We'll, We'll talk more about it. Putting it in order, getting rid of this, putting these things in their place. Then it says he goes and takes with them seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, this is the danger of mere reformation. And I realize that some are like, well, wouldn't it be better if all the drunks were sober and all the drug addicts were clean? Absolutely. But you could be, well, well, people don't really call them drunks anymore, do they? We have euphemisms. They're, they're, you know, alcoholics. And uh, my dad was one or the other or both. But the, the, the bottom line is, it's when I was growing up, it was people... Well, they were called drunks. Why? They took too much alcohol, and the Bible doesn't say don't be, you know... um an alcoholic with wine. It says, don't be drunk with wine, you know. And so, am I saying, well, I'm going down a road I didn't intend to go. That can cause problems. Not because I don't want to address the issue, but because it's not the primary issue. Let me just say this. I'm all for sober people. I'm all for clean people. But that is not the same as being born again of the Spirit of God. You can clean up your act and find yourself down the road in all sorts of places. You wouldn't have ever ended up if you just truly give your life to the Lord, and that's what I'm arguing for here. Self-improvement, that's a picture of what we have here. The demon's gone, guy cleans up, and then what happens? The demon comes back and says, hey, we're home, and bringing others with him in the last state of that man, worse than the first. Well, back in the day, and I'm talking the 70s, you know, late 60s, uh, mid-70s, we often use the word that's used in, in the New Testament regularly, and that's the word righteous. I mean, we use it for anything and everything. Man, that's a righteous song, or, or bro, that was a righteous sunset, or, or, you know, sometimes we use it to describe a substance, or even a sunset that we looked at after ingesting a substance. But we use the word righteous... Not realizing it really had a biblical foundation and and had biblical connotations. Now, I bring this to your attention for a very important reason. I never once heard anybody say that was a real religious sunset or that was a real religion. No, we never used the word religion because we knew both inherently and many of us experientially that there is a vast and great difference between true righteousness and religion. Now, am I against religion now too? No, but I'm saying religion isn't what it appears to be. And again, lest I offend the religious in our midst, which is never my intention, but I do want to say this. I have known many people who were very devout, very sincere, very religious, good, kind, caring people, giving people, but they still needed to be born again. Jesus told the ultimate religious guy, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, Nick, you must be born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say you must be born again. It's not enough is the point. It's not enough to be religious. And I believe religion, especially the religions not instituted in scripture, and by the way, even in the Old Testament, I probably shouldn't even use the word religious because because it was all about a relationship with God. It was always relational. And so religion, that's a satanic substitute for a right relationship with God. Religion is a satanic substitute for for the righteousness that is imparted, imputed to us when we put all our faith and hope, not in what we've done or what we do or what we've stopped doing, but in Christ and in Christ alone. So Religion, by the way, the cultists are very religious. I'd say more religious than many people who aren't involved in the cults. The jihadists, terrorists, they're very religious, extremely sincere. No one would doubt that they believe what they say they believe because they're willing to lay down their life. Of course, there's some confusion there. They're taking innocent life in the process, something the Bible absolutely would forbid. But The point is, if religion is a substitute for righteousness, then religion is the enemy here. And and so we need to see that. Again, we're not saying religious people are the enemy. I believe religious people have been deceived into thinking they're going to be accepted by God because of their religion. And I believed that, by the way, for about 27 years until I really gave my life to the Lord and I could see the difference. You see, when you're religious, it all looks the same. That's why religious people can say, well, I don't see what the big deal is. I mean, they're just as sincere as we are. The test isn't sincerity, it's truth. You can be sincere and sincerely wrong. And so it, what it comes down to is that righteousness trumps religion. And, and, and so, well, religious leaders they're going to focus primarily on the need for reformation. Cleaning up your act, looking better, acting better, speaking better. But the problem is if it's an outward transformation that isn't really initiated from the inside out, well, it's not going to be acceptable to God. And it actually can put us in the place of thinking, well, I'm going to be okay because, look, I I used to do that, but I don't anymore and I, I, I never did that and I do it all the time now. And that's the difference again religious people tend to focus on what they no longer do. You know, the, the, the little poem, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. It's, it's the essence of religion, you see. I don't and I don't and I don't. Or the other side of the coin is I do and I do and I do do. And, and by the way, that's not accidental. Paul actually says all the things I was and all the things I did, they amounted to a big old pile of What? dung. That's his word. He says it was just dung. And so the idea, if I don't do that and I do do this, it just mounts to a pile of dung in the sight of God, because our righteousness is as filthy rags in his sight. Well, again, if you're religious, you need Jesus. And if you're not religious, then you need Jesus. The only difference is, is that, you know, the religious think, well, I might be okay. The, the one who isn't religious doesn't even know if there's an okay to be. I'm saying all have sin and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible says we're justified freely by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. We'll talk more about what that means. Well, it happens as he spoke these words. Verse 27, a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice saying to him, blessed is the womb who bore you and the breast which nursed you. Before we look at Jesus' response, let me paraphrase this one. Your mom must be so proud, you know, in no doubt. What a wonderful thing to be Mary. Although we've talked about the difficulties she would have experienced because of the accusations, you know, that the very few people would have bought that this this child was born, you know, miraculously. And and, and so the point is, she's saying, your mom is so blessed. And, And Jesus doesn't say that's not true, but he says more than that. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In the same way that that righteousness trumps religion, well, the spiritual always trumps the natural because it's eternal. And Mary had two relationships to Jesus. You have to know this. She had a natural physical relationship because she birthed him and no one could be closer to him for that reason. But Mary, like every other person on the planet, had to be born again. She too had to trust in Jesus for for what he did on the cross, the blood he shed, the life he gave. So back in verse 16, we had read that there were others. They weren't about slanderously accusing him, but what they did is they sought a sign from him and, and, and they said, show us a sign from heaven. Now the idea here is, you know, God moved in the Old Testament and, you know, he opened the skies and he did this and he did that. Well, do something. And uh, Jesus is going to address that request as we look at the rest of this chapter. While the crowds were thickly gathered together. So we have this picture of everybody pressing in, verse 29. He began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. That word accept is so important here. Here's why. It is a word of grace. Jesus could have just said no signs. I mean, I'm here. I've taught. I've done these miracles. I mean, you don't get it. You're not going to get it. But he says, I'll give you the ultimate sign. And it's the sign of Jonah. Elsewhere we're told as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. So the son of man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah is the resurrection that it points to. So they have this historical illustration, but not just that, not just Jonah. And you know, when he was thrown overboard, he was as good as dead, but then he was swallowed miraculously by a fish. And ordinarily, when you're swallowed by a fish in the middle of the ocean, you're as good as dead. But again, he survives in the belly of that fish deposited on the shores of Nineveh where he preaches. Not exactly God has a wonderful plan for your life and would love you to know. No, he's like 40 days and you guys are dead. And he was looking forward to that, by the way. Most of you are aware of the story of Jonah, the reluctant prophet. But we know that they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And that's what Jesus is making reference to. The ultimate sign of Jonah is that that this whole nation turned from their sin and repented and trusted in God, asking for his forgiveness. And by the way, they had no assurance that forgiveness would be granted. They said, perhaps he'll forgive us. They had no way of knowing if he would or not. Well, he says, as Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, so the son of man will be to this generation. He uses another illustration in verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, wisest man that ever lived, powerful, wealthy, wise. And, and, and so the queen of the south, she comes, she travels, and, and she says, man, I, I, I was told about you, but it wasn't even the half of the reality I see before me. But here's Jesus' point. A greater than Solomon is here. So he's saying, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. And then he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. He moves to an illustration that explains what he saw as he was working his miracles and teaching and sharing these parables He says in verse 33, no one when he has lit a lamp puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. Now, that's the part they all understood. If you light a lamp, you light it so that people can see. So you light a light, you set it on the, the shelf in the house, and when people come in, everybody can see not just the light, but they can see everything in the house. Now, he applies it. He says the lamp of the body is the eye. And therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Now, he's going to amplify all this, but track with me on it for a moment. What he's saying is, okay, you're looking at me and you're listening to me, but the way you look, the, the what you perceive is is really determined by how you look. He says, if your eye is evil, then then, well, the, the, the light's not going to penetrate it. If your eye is good, your whole body will then be full of light, even as the whole of the house would be full of light. Well, Jesus, of course, the light of the world. When he speaks of having bad eyes, physically, that would mean diseased or blind. I had a, I've had an astigmatism my entire life. I've always been able to read up close until recently. That's starting to get a little harder. So, so physically, we know what you know bad eyes are all about. But ethically... An evil eye is just that, an evil or a wicked eye. It's looking at people. Well, we use that term, don't we? She gave me the evil eye or he gave me the evil eye. And and, and that's what they were doing. They were looking at the light of the world, but they were looking with with an evil eye. And he says, you, you look at the light that way. Well, the light doesn't penetrate. It doesn't break through to accomplish what it's sent to do. Socially, the idea of an evil eye or a bad eye speaks of maliciousness in effect and influence. And this is the worst because not only were they rejecting what they saw in Jesus and what they heard from Jesus and what they they knew the Old Testament said Messiah would do, but they were making it difficult for others. These are the religious leaders, remember. These are the ones others are looking at who are looking at Jesus and and they're saying, no, he can't be the one. he's He's speaking for the enemy. He's working for the enemy. So he says, take heed that the light that is in you, is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. When you get to 1 John, John does such a great job contrasting those who are in the light and those who are in the darkness. And he he says of our Lord, by the way, that in him is light and there is no darkness. Why? You can't mix light and dark. You come into a dark room, you flip on the light, the darkness has to flee. And what he's saying is, hey listen, even the blind can feel the warmth of the sun, but they can't see its light. And these guys, these Pharisees, these scribes, these lawyers, they were,, well, they were looking at the light of the word written and they were in darkness. They were looking at the light incarnate and the word incarnate, and they were still in darkness, and John tells us in chapter three, right before he tells Nicodemus he must be born again, or right after, he says, this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness more than light, neither would they come to the light, lest their deeds be exposed as evil.
0: The mockers in our study today faced an interesting paradox. According to Jesus, their eyes were evil, so that whatever it was they looked at, they saw through the light that was in them, and the light that was in them was evil. The only way for them to have the light of the Lord in them was for them to accept Christ as their savior, but they could not see that for the light that was in them. It almost sounds that it would be an impossible thing for them. This paradox, as it were, is a little above my pay grade, however, I do know this. John 1.4 says of Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Being in Christ and being filled with his light was much more of a work of our Lord than it ever was anything that I did. This gives me reason to be thankful every day for it. The light that was in me was not always his light, yet Jesus found a way to fill me with his light, and for that I am eternally grateful.